Good evening, good afternoon, good morning. Welcome to The Truth with Bill. Hi everyone, welcome back. Thanks for joining me. Uh, we have a great podcast this week. Uh, we're going to jump right in and get into it. Uh, we're going to go over some books, uh, some literature I've been reading, uh, and talk about some other wonderful things. So get ready. Here we go. Uh, our first book, um, which I've quoted before in some other podcasts, is called Vive Cachu Dumani. Vive Cachu Dumani. That's right. Uh, and just to spell it, if you want to uh, look it up for yourself, uh, you, you want to have a copy, uh, there's an online resource with it there also. Um, I'll spell it out for you, so grab a pen and, uh, pen and paper if you like, uh, and here we go. V as in Victor, I as in Igloo, V as in Victor, E as in Elephant, K as in Kite, A as in Alpha, C as in Charlie, U as in Umbrella, D as in Douglas, A as in Alpha, M as in Mama, A as in Alpha, N as in Nancy, and I as in Igloo. Vivkachu Dumani. Uh, written almost a thousand years ago. So uh, we're going to start with the second verse, uh, and it begins, quote, For all living creatures, a human birth is indeed rare. Much more difficult it is to attain full manhood. Uh, which this, this is from an online source. I have a hard copy, a written resource um, here at home. Uh, both sources are different in their translation, and we will get to that. Uh, so let's just be mindful in that this translation states manhood. The hard copy um, at home says male body. So instead of malehood, it says male body. So we'll get to that. Uh, let's get back to the quote from the top. For all living creatures, a human birth is indeed rare. Much more difficult it is to attain full manhood. Rarer than this is the strategic attitude in life. Even after gaining all these rare chances to have steadfastness on the spiritual path, as explained in the Veldic literature, is yet rarer. Much more so is to have correct understanding and the deep import in the scriptures, discrimination between the real, real is capitalized, and the unreal, a personal realization of spiritual glory, glory is capitalized, and ultimately to get fully established in the living consciousness that is the self in me, is the self in all. These come only later on and communicate on the liberation on I'm sorry. These come only later and communicate on one's liberation. This kind of perfect liberation cannot be obtained without miraculous deeds of many millions of well-lived lives. Uh, so first things first. Um, when things are uh, written in one language and then they're translated to another language, there's apt to be differences. So oftentimes there are no words for that thing that they are trying to define in one language. Um, and then in the, the other language it has no words for it. So how do we understand that? Uh, it is something to know and be careful and to be careful of uh, while we're reading any text that's been translated. Uh, translation goes beyond word meaning between the languages themselves. Uh, we have something called the OED, which is the Oxford English Dictionary. 
the OED is like every other dictionary, except uh, when, in the sense of time. And what I mean by that is that the OED will have, uh, you could look up a word, and when you find that word, you will see its current definition. Then you will also see the definition of that word through time and how it has been used in, in every notable article um, and its definition of how it was used, which has changed through time. So in these um, translations uh, from, from other religious sources that, that, that we're gaining, um, not only are we dealing with the translation, but we're also dealing with what the exact word meaning is and how it pertained to that particular culture and people of that time. Uh, which can change vastly. So we have to keep all of that in mind when we read these. Um, so to take everything for face value that we're reading, we really cannot. We cannot. We have to be very good detectives while we read such things. Uh, so one might ask, what is the difference between manhood and male body? Why would it matter? If we're to believe that the accurate translation is man, or I'm sorry, is manhood, then we can conclude that almost a thousand years ago, being born a woman had its own labyrinth of illusion than that of a man, which is not to exclude women. It is to simply acknowledge the difficulty women face being a woman, a difficulty no man would or could know. So, for example, I was speaking with my significant other on this topic and Recently in America, we had a young female college student who went missing. Uh, it was all over the news, uh, countrywide. Uh, she went out for a jog and she never returned. It was later discovered that she was murdered. Her killer had followed her in his vehicle as she ran. And I said to my significant other, I, I, I would never think about my safety as a man going out for a jog. Like, the thought would never even occur to me. And in fact, quite the opposite. I, I would think being a runner, who would try and run after a runner? I mean, if, if I'm jogging, clearly I'm pretty good at running. And I could run for a long time. Who the heck wants to even try and attempt to chase me? I mean, it's just that would never enter my mind. But this is something that women must deal with with every decision they make. Their thought process and every decision is my safety. How awful is that? And speaking with my significant other, she brought up things. Uh, if she's at the, if she's home, and I'm at work, and, and someone needs to come by to fix something, um, she doesn't like that. She will set up appointments for me to be home, and I, I will too. Um, it, you know, just to to make sure that she feels safe. And. I can't imagine having those thoughts as as a man, and that's really what 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 I think that that this is meaning is not to say that you cannot be a woman and and reach these goals. It is simply acknowledging the difficulty women will have in seeing through the illusion, because unfortunately, being the physical weaker sex has created a number of problems from us men over time. And uh, we'll talk about that a little later because that, that comes up again um, in our, our podcast today. 
So back to our quote. Um, oh, that, that was also something else I, I, I wanted to, to mention. Um, so like I was saying, not, not to exclude women and, and to kind of bold that point, um, the, the image on, on this podcast is of a woman and she is Anadea Maya Ma. That was the name given to her. She is a Hindu spiritual teacher. Um, I absolutely love her story. Um, I, I think she's fantastic. Uh, if you get a moment, you know, you could look her up. Um, very interesting story. Uh, her name is Anadeya Mia Ma. Uh, so if you're interested, uh, please look her up. Uh, so back to our quote. Uh, then manhood would imply that only men can go through this rite of passage, right? So male body um, says two things. One, uh, it doesn't exclude women. It just says that your soul operating a male biological vehicle, it'll be easier for you to see through the illusion, to see uh, the real, which was capitalized from the unreal. Um, that's, that's number one. For, for male body, uh, and two, a biological body in general, which, which other quotes we'll address later on, but it's already starting to state that the human biological vehicle, of all the biological vehicles your soul could operate, is one of the best for you to reaching liberation, one of the best for you to see through the illusion. Uh, the third verse. <clears throat> is there a man who, or is there a man or woman who, having somehow obtained this rare human birth, together with masculine temperament and also a complete knowledge of the scriptures, is foolish enough not to strive hard for self-realization? One commits suicide clinging to the unreal. Obviously, this is uh, recognition that a human life is the only kind of biological life that we have the opportunity to know the truth, like I said. Um, and, it, it can, and this kind of uh, religious writing, it, it keeps saying what it's already stated, but it says it in different ways for everyone to understand it. Um, I've read different religious scriptures like this. The Mahanayan Sutras are very much like this. Um, and I'm, I won't kid you, it is not an easy read. It is something you tend to read, you know, a few, few lines of, a few verses of. You kind of keep it in your head for the rest of the day and, and think about it. And, uh, and that's kind of the best way, I think, to, to go through it. Um, although with that being said, <laughs> lately I've been reading much, much more uh, than that. Uh, due in part largely of this podcast, you know, getting things ready, which, by the way, I thank you for. Um, I think having this in, in my mind throughout my day um, has really changed things for me and has accelerated my growth um, more than I have ever thought. Uh, and I'll talk about that a little later, too. Um, so now the fifth verse. Let scholars quote all the scriptures, let gods be invoked through sacrifices, let elaborate rituals be performed, 
let personal gods be propitiated, yet without the realization of one's identity with self, there shall be no liberation for the individual, not even in the lifetimes of a hundred Brahmas put together. Uh, a lifetime of a Brahma was something like 200 and some million or trillion, a very long time. And it's also important to note that Brahma is seen um, as an individual, a god, in the Hindu religion. But before Brahma was a god, um, Brahma was an idea. An idea that very closely resembles what we've said in the first podcast, uh, something along the lines of, what if the divine were a giant kind of soul, and then we were fractions of that soul um, that now operate a biological vehicle? And this is the same kind of thinking a thousand years ago. Uh, and this current quote says uh, basically that you could do all deeds, all services, all functions in the name of God, any God. But without the realization of who you are, it is useless. It doesn't matter. Uh, verse 10. May the wise and learned man and woman give up all actions motivated by desires and start the practice of realization of self and thereby attain freedom from the bondage of birth and death. Verse 11, actions help to purify the mind, but they do not by themselves contribute to the attainment of reality. The attainment of the reals brought by only the self inquiry and not in the least by even 10 million acts. And Hindu kind of thought is that whatever good-natured acts you get, or I'm sorry, whatever good-natured acts you do will put you in a better biological life, your next life. So, and this is saying the acts themselves will not give you self-realization, only self-inquiry will. The acts, however, will set up more opportunities for you to gain self-inquiry. And that is something to be thankful for. Actions are based in our two-dimensional perspective of this world. Uh, and this world uh, is seen as an illusion and as such cannot be trusted. Trusted in the sense of the real and the not real. Which is why the specific actions themselves cannot contribute to the attainment of reality. They, they're not going to make it happen. And I say that because there are certain yoga practices that uh, believe Shatki will come up and, and open up all of your chakras and you will, bam, have this enlightenment through a series of yoga practices. Um, you can pray and pray and pray um, in, until you die of starvation and this will still not give you um, the freedom of bondage of birth and death, the self-inquiry. It, it has to be... Um, it has to be your own personal self-discovery. Um, and it also has to be outside of our two-dimensional world. So like we were, or how we experience this world two-dimensionally. Uh, and we were saying in our first podcast of meditation and how meditation shuts off the senses. And then we are then able to connect to the divine because it's shutting off the illusion that is in our brain. And... Uh, this continues to, to say something very similar. Uh, verse 14, ultimate success in spiritual endeavors depends chiefly upon the qualifications of the seeker. 
Auxiliary conveniences such as time and place all have a place indeed, but are essentially secondary. So conveniences, even if this life, uh, even if you did all these wonderful deeds to have this current life give you all of these benefits and abilities, they are still secondary, secondary, because they depend chiefly on the qualifications of the seeker. And what are the qualifications of the seeker? A seeker would be someone who is open-minded, someone who continues to ask questions, someone who is never happy with an answer because he or she knows that there is more. A seeker has a drive to learn, to know, a drive that can never be stopped. A seeker has a constant question on his or her mind. What would that question be? What questions do you have? Do they come in the form of who am I? Why am I here? What is my divine purpose? What is, what is my purpose in, in general? What is my purpose in what is the purpose of humanity? These are the questions of a seeker. A seeker also searches all over with no limit, no boundaries. And here in verse 15, we begin to see what a teacher would look like. Therefore, a true seeker, I'm sorry, therefore, a true seeker of the self should proceed with his or her inquiry after duly approaching a master who is established in the experience of the self and who is an ocean of compassion. In thinking of the teacher himself or herself, one would have the sense that the teacher is not going out looking for students. Rather, it is the future student looking for the teacher. It is the student's decision to search, and the cause of that decision needs to happen for the student. It cannot be forced upon them. How many times have we offered help or knowledge to someone who did not want it? It fell on deaf ears. And this brings me to a wonderful point, um, a, a personal kind of rule that, that, I have, that I have been beginning to adapt. And I have noticed, as I'm sure all of us have at one time or another, that if someone specifically is not asking you for help, any kind of help, any kind of talk on that topic is useless and it does nothing positive. It only does negative for you and the listener of that talk, if there is another person. And basically, uh, if someone does not ask you for, for help, then that someone, no matter how you say or what you do to help, it's not going to work. It'll never change that person's thinking because that person has to seemingly hit rock bottom before they listen to what you say. And it doesn't have to be rock bottom in a sense of like, oh, I've lost everything, my, my poor, poor life. No, I, I mean... Rock bottom mentally, like, I've tried everything I can. I've given up. I'm throwing my hands up in the air. Please, someone help me. When that happens, that is the person that is ready to listen. Other than that, there's no point in thinking about it, thinking of outcomes of things. It is all a waste of energy, and it causes a physical stressor in you. And lately, we've been talking a lot about 
paying attention to our bodies, paying attention to our physical stressors. We've had homework and how to deal with, with others um, when they speak to us negatively or in a way that we don't approve of. Uh, we begin to think and have empathy for them and really kind of just feel bad and want to help. But we can't help because they're not asking for help. Even though that outward burst is a cry for help. I know it's very complex and confusing. Unfortunately, that's how the human brain works. So, uh, and what do we do? Well, generally, nothing. There's nothing that we can do. Even though there's an outburst and a cry for help, um, they're not really asking to help. They just don't know how to deal with the current situation that they are dealing with. However, what we can do is remind them that we are there and constantly remind them that we're there. We are there without judgment. Uh, we are there to help. Um, we are full of forgiveness. There's nothing anyone can do that I will not forgive. Nothing. Because I am that person. I have done the same thing, and I need them to forgive me too. And once we get past of all, all of that, we can begin to have honest conversations with each other. Free of judgment. Free of everything. So, my, my rule now, Bill's golden rules, uh, the, the, the rule now that I'm working on is... Uh, if someone doesn't ask for help, I'm not going to help. Um, I won't even think about it. I won't even think about the best possible outcome for that person. Nothing. Because I can't change it. And it's a waste of time, a waste of energy, and it's very stressful. And this comes about a lot when we're having conversations with others. And it's usually someone's situation... And we know of that situation, and the other party knows of that situation. And the other party says, how's so-and-so doing? And then that person says, oh, so-and-so. So-and-so, this, this, and this, and this. And then each of you have your own conclusion of what the right way to fix it would be, and then voice it amongst each other. We do this, but... For what reason? The person that needs the help isn't getting any of your information, uh, number one. Uh, secondly, they've never asked. So even if you gave it to them, you know they're not going to listen. Um, and then as you're talking about this, think about how it makes you feel physically. Try and feel your energy levels. Do you feel excited? Do you feel stressed? Do you feel anxious? Focusing on these physical responses to our, our, mental, our mental functions is the right way to go. And there is a huge lack in that. Uh, last week we talked about holding on to the physical hot pot, and we let that go immediately. But when we hold the mental hot pot, it burns our hand time and time again, and we never let it go. It just keeps burning us. And even when it's burning us and we go to let it go, we only drop it for another pot. And it's this vicious cycle that hurts us. So our mental hurts and how they affect us physically, we need to pay attention to. That's the key. 
that will map out the truth for us. If we follow that back to its source, we will have our answers. And then we have to be good detectives. We have to judge ourselves harshly when we come to these conclusions as to why I am doing this, I am saying this, I am thinking this, I am feeling this. And when we get through all of that, the question is, well, who is the I? Right? The I is not Bill. The I is not Bill. Bill is not this male biological body sitting here talking to this podcast. No. This Bill is being operated by something else, a higher consciousness. As is everyone else and everything else. Very good. Let's continue. Uh, here we are. Verse 18. Great sages have spoken of four qualifications for attainment, which, when present, succeed in the realization of Brahma, and in the absence of which the goal is not obtained. Verse 19. First we count the ability to discriminate between the real and the unreal. Next comes the spirit of detachment from the enjoyment of the fruits of actions here and hereafter. After that is the groups of six virtues beginning with calmness, and the last is undoubtedly an intense desire for liberation. Verse 20. A firm conviction of Brahma alone is real and the phenomenal world is unreal is known as discrimination between the real and the unreal. And you could see how the author is going through each individual thing here, describing each one. Verse 21, the desire to give up all transient joys, enjoyments gained through seeing, hearing, etc. And also experiences gained through equipments ranging from a mortal body to the form of Brahma is called detachment. And like I said, each qualification is gone through. And uh, not, to, not to bore all of you with, with this, because we could go through the whole book verse after verse and annotate it. And it may be interesting to some folks. Personally, the inventor in me likes to do it alone. And I would very much like for the inventor in you to do it alone. And whether it's this book or any book, um, just kind of read things, annotate things, and, and see where it leaves you. Uh, I, I, think, I think it'll be good. Um, so uh, w with that being said, uh, we're going to move on here. Uh, I've also been studying uh, some mudras lately, and Wiki defines a mudra as a symbolic or ritual gesture in Hinduism and Buddhism. While some mudras involve the entire body, most are performed with the hands and fingers. I've gotten interested in, in this for a funny kind of reason and a personal reason, and uh, I will share that with you. So my first form of education uh, was through Catholic school. Um, I never let my schooling get in the way of my education. Uh, Mark Twain. <laughs> That's one of my favorite co quotes, right? Uh, so I, I went to Catholic school as a child, um, and there I had to pray in the school's church. I was already praying uh, at home. You know, I, I knew the, the Hail Marys, Our Father, uh, to say grace before dinner. And those were my three, you know, as a kid before I started school. Um... In any event, I remember praying for the first time at school and seeing other students pray. And 
most of them were, were holding their hands like I was, palm to palm, fingertips pointing up into the heavens. And then I, I noticed one or two praying with their fingers interlaced, uh, both hands balled together like one giant fist. And this struck me as odd as a child. I never saw anyone pray like this, and because we were at school and no higher authority had stopped them from praying like this, it seemed okay to me. So why not give it a try? Um, now, before I get into that, let me tell you, I have never doubted my prayers. Um, and I, I think I was just trying it because it seemed different. And maybe they knew something I, I didn't. Um, so anyhow, uh, th these were my honest thoughts as a kid. So I gave it a shot. And as soon as I did it, it felt very strange and foreign to me. And... I just didn't feel that kind of connection that I had felt when I prayed with my hands the other way. And I thought, how can God hear my prayers if the beams of light coming from my fingers are not pointed to the heavens? And I, I had never prayed like that again since, since that experience. But that kind of thinking, without ever knowing the actual reasoning behind that form of prayer that physical gesture of literally the beams of light pointing to the heavens, pointing to God, thus hearing your prayers. Uh, that's like the umbilical cord to God. That's the connection. And, and I understood this very clearly as a kid, seemingly, right? And uh, so I never prayed like that again. Um, and as I said, uh, I had a very strong faith in my prayers. I, I prayed every night. Uh, and I always prayed for good, tangible things. Nothing was ever prayed for that was selfish or, or you know, for myself um, or, or anything like that. But there was one exception um, that periodically I would pray for, and it would come true. And uh, I guess it, it would have to be at least once a month. Um, I would say my prayers, and I, I would ask God, you know, if, if you could, at the end of my prayers, I would say, God, if you could. I know I shouldn't ask for this, but if you could, just please make it happen. If you could, you don't have to. This kind of thing, right? This is how I was praying. I said, if you could make it happen, please, I don't want to go to school tomorrow. Just make it so I don't have to go. And the next morning, my mother would come into my room to wake me up. And she would say, oh, Bill, get up. Um, so, you know, we're not going to school today. For one reason or another, my mother would come in after this prayer the very next day and say that we're not going to school. And I never abused this. I would use it very irregularly, once a month, probably longer, who knows. And every morning, the next morning, it would happen. And as a child, in this working, I mean, it gave me crazy faith in God. And I had no doubt that everything I had said to God in my prayers was being heard. Was being heard. Now, whether it happened or not, I still thought that that was different. Because, as I knew, God worked in mysterious ways. And maybe there was some other reason that I couldn't comprehend as to why things wouldn't come to be. Now, with that being said, like I said, all my prayers were answered. There were prayers that took longer than others to be answered. And it seemed as though 
that those prayers, those things needed to happen. I needed to experience those things before those prayers could get answered. And those experiences made me who I am today. Not those experiences, rather how I dealt with those experiences that have shaped my kind of thinking and the way I see the world. And it's very interesting. So as an adult, um, I, I kept this very secret. I, I never told anyone that I would pray to not go to school. And the very next day, always, my mother would come in and say, you know, not. And I, I think partially I was scared to bring it up um, to my mother because you know, what if she could hear me pray and she heard these prayers and, you know, wanted you know, wanted me to, to believe, or I don't know, I, I don't know, maybe felt bad, who knows? So I never asked her, and it wasn't until my early 30s, this is how strong this stuck with me, it wasn't until my early 30s that I had enough courage to ask my mom about this. And I, I said, Mom, I said, you know, I, I never told you this, but, and I explained the situation to her, and I said, did, did you ever hear my prayers? like through the vents or, or through the walls or something like that. And she laughed. And I think she was just taken back by it because I, I don't think she expected me to say that. Who would expect that, right? And uh, she said, no, she never heard my prayers. I, I mean, you know, to to make them come true like that, you know? And I, I don't know. That stayed with me forever. Um, so with that being said... Uh, and, and that kind of thing, you know, me, me taking that kind of thing with me throughout life, uh, you know, I, I come to, to read and study and learn about mudras, and this is a different religion, specifically using hand gestures as the connection to God, and very different ones with very different meanings and very different effects. And so I've been trying these out. And I bring this up today because I think there are many things through our life that we've experienced that we've kind of forgotten. And I say, one, remember these things, and two, explore them as an adult. Why, why limit yourself? I, I think as a kid, you are probably the most open and purest you will ever be in this form. And because of that, as a kid, the things that come into your head, like that kind of thing, the praying, um, there's something in that. Because your, your understanding is, is so pure and so without um, filters of life that have shaped and changed your ideas and thoughts, that it's, I think it's worthwhile for us to think back to those times and explore them a little. Plus, it's fun. Uh, so, um, if you're curious, do I physically feel anything uh, with these mudras? Well, uh, what I've done was I was interested, so I bought um, the, this box of cards that has, I don't know, however many mudras in it, a lot. And uh, they depict uh, a specific mudra with the definition of what it is. And uh, that's nice because I could pick a different one every day, you know, out of the stack. Uh, and I also bought a book which gave a little more, uh, more of a comprehensive definition of each mudra and explained it historically, and I like that stuff. So uh, between the two, um, 
And my understanding of it has been going very well. Uh, my practice of it has been going well. Uh, the feeling that I get when I do it, um, I definitely feel a noticeable physical difference. And quite often in the same areas that the mudras are saying that you should feel a difference. Um, so I'm trying it out. And uh, if, if you folks are interested, um, the book that I... The book that I have on the mudras is Mudras of India by Kane Carroll and, uh, and his wife, uh, Revidal Carroll. Um, and then uh, the cards are Mudras for Body, Mind, and Spirit uh, from Gertrude Hershey. Uh, and Hershey is H-I-R-S-C-H-I. Uh, so pretty cool, good stuff. Uh, try it out if you're interested. Um, and lastly today, uh, it, this is so funny. So our last podcast, which really wasn't a podcast, it was me just kind of saying something because uh, I made a promise to you guys that I would do a podcast every week. And despite the fact that these wonderful books have not come in yet, uh, I still... Uh, thought that I should put something out there. Uh, before I forget, and I, I know I'm bouncing around here, but I did pick up this other book, which I did not um, get into talking about today, but I did begin to read it. And I don't really want to say too much about it yet because I haven't finished reading it, and I don't want to be wrong and, and put out inaccurate information. But the title of this book, and it was very difficult to find, um, is The Manifold and the one. The title is The Manifold and the One. Ang's Arbor wrote it. Um, the price of the book was one dollar and twenty-five cents. It came out in nineteen sixty. Let's see here, nineteen sixty-seven. It was published, um, and basically, uh, Ang's Arbor writes this book and speaks about everything we we talk about and what she did here in the. The mid-60s is pull uh, Buddhism, Hinduism, and some other great things and say, if we look at all of these religions, we see some huge comparisons um, that we could then assess as the truth. And uh, she goes through it. And so far, uh, her argument is that the concept of there being a divine and fractions of that divine are filling biological vehicles. We're all connected. It's fundamentally what she's saying without those words. That kind of religious thinking is for uh, the, I, I don't, the religiously knowledgeable. So if you are well-versed in religion, this is the kind of religious thought for you. And that was the beginning of religious thought. Everything else, all things written, all depictions of different gods and deities, um, all diagrams like uh, the Dharma wheel, um, all of these things are for the common man or woman of religion. So if you're not a, a heavy student of religion, these are things to help you understand what religion actually is. And her argument is that this was the basis of all religions and all religions, uniquely enough, had to digress each one through 
writing, through diagram, through giving these ideas um, human forms or human identity or humanoid identity um, to relate more to the common religious mind. And that was really quite interesting to begin to read her argument. Um, I could not find any kind of PDF copies of this book online. I had to find it through some kind of vintage bookstore. Uh, it smells very good. If you like the way old books smell, I do. Um, it smells great. Um, and it's a nice, nice little book to add to the collection. So again, it's called uh, Ang's Arbor, The Manifold and the One. Uh, if you're looking for something to reinforce this kind of thought, this kind of conversation, uh, this book is definitely it. Um, and as these books go, never an easy read, something you have to read a little bit of, think about, uh, then read a little bit more of, think about, watch, rinse, repeat. Uh, so let's get back to what I was saying about our other podcast of, of last week, which was very short. And so, uh, so, so you folks know I, <clears throat> I say the podcast and then I will listen to it once over, just one time over, just to make sure I don't say anything incorrectly. Uh, if there's funny noises, phone calls, cats yelling, um, I let that all go. To me, that's part of the experience, the garage band experience. Um, uh, nice, fresh, and raw. You get the feeling like you're sitting here in my living room with me, drinking a cup of coffee, and you know we're playing with the cats. Um, so that's what I like. Uh, so I listened to it one time after, and last week's was very short, so I listened to it. And I heard myself apologize a number of times in that podcast. And when I listened to it a second time, I thought, wow, that was a lot of apologies. Maybe I should delete that and restart it and redo it. And it's only 15 minutes long or so, so surely I could do that easily. No big deal. <clears throat> but because after I heard it, I immediately thought about me apologizing it made me think of some other events in my life um, where saying you're sorry as a man was seen as not good um, or seen as, as weakness. And I remembered uh, two things right off the bat. So first and foremost, I had a uh, previous uh, co-worker of mine say that um, when, when you are in a position of power, uh, you are in charge, a position of leadership, you never say you're sorry because that makes you look weak to everyone else. And I thought that is an absolute ridiculous concept. Even if it makes me look weak, I would rather look human to the people that are working for me than try and look like some kind of machine that is not really me. I never want to be someone I am not. As a matter of fact, I'm trying to get to be me, the real me, as much as possible. And that in itself is difficult. So I'm certainly not going to go out of my way to make myself different. I, I'm just not. <laughs> um, I, I don't believe in that and I don't want to live that kind of life because I want to say if someone is having trouble in life and maybe maybe people are having issues in this way and, and they don't know how to ask, then it is very important to live that life so that if they don't have the confidence to ask, they can at least visually see and think, maybe I could try this way. 
And I've done that myself. I haven't had the confidence to ask people how they live and how they've come to that. But I've seen what they do and what they've studied, and I've studied and done the same things. So it's, it happens. This is, this is how it works. Um, so with that being said, I, I remember that comment from that coworker of mine. It, it just it never sat well with me, especially as a leader. I, I, never, I never wanted the, the people under me to think that I would not and am not willing to do the same job they are at any given time. Um, it's, it's all about helping each other out. Uh, it has nothing to do with anyone's title or anything like that. Um, it, it's really just looking out for one another. And um, I think having that kind of work environment, that kind of friend environment, is something really good. And, and with that being said, um, this, this idea of of, of men not owning up to their mistakes, I think is something uh, cultural and um, something that has been ingrained in our, our masculine sex. It, it is physical male strength is, is something that I'm sure is, is what was the, the catalyst for, for men dominating society, right? Because uh, you would have to be physically strong to to say what you want and and uh, how you want it. People have to listen to you because you are physically stronger than them. And you can imagine cavemen starting out this kind of thing. Ooga booga, I hit you over the head, now you listen to me. Um, and this is how humanity's social structure had risen from. And it has taken a very long time for us to, to get away from that. Um, and I think any opportunity as a man that I have to show that you could still be a man and still be defined as a man and say things like you're sorry or shed a tear in public, these are manly things. I would argue that shedding a tear in public as a man is more manly than holding in any kind of emotion and not shedding that tear. Because think about it. Holding in those emotions, you, you say, oh, this is strong. This is what men do, right? But showing those emotions in public amongst your friends and your family, you're leaving yourself wide open to judgment. Judgment that you don't want to have because it affects your ego. Oh, how are they going to judge me? How are they going to judge my ego? I can't cry in front of them. I can't seem weak. That doesn't seem weak at all. That is more strong than not showing any emotion because you're having to face those things. You're consciously making a decision to let go of your physical emotions. And there's nothing wrong with that. We all do it. At one point or another, I, I could see myself as a man's man. And I am sure that people would define me uh, on first meeting as a man's man until you get to know me. Uh, I think I've cried at every Disney movie. Uh, the fairy ones especially. I have bawled. <laughs> and, and what? So what? That's great. They're great movies. If they make me cry like that, that's awesome. That means they have really made me get in touch with something that I have felt so strongly that, that I have experienced this emotion. And think about it. 
we are knowingly the only the only living creatures that experience emotion at this level. Although I've seen elephants do some interesting things that you know, and I've seen other animals do interesting things in the way of emotion, but for the most part, our ability to express emotion the way in which we do is very different than any other biological vehicle we know of. And I think that's a beautiful thing. So, <laughs> um, yes, I, I did think that I apologized maybe one or two too many times in that last episode, but I really kind of thought that um, there was somebody out there listening that really couldn't wait to hear another podcast from The Truth with Bill, and I thought about that. I thought, man, if I was that guy just waiting for it, and, you know, Bill promised me that this podcast was coming every week, and I see a podcast notification light up on my app, and here it is, just some 15-minute little bit of something that I want more of, you know? Man, he better say he's sorry, <laughs> you know? And that, that's just what I was kind of thinking. So uh, with that being said... Um, I am now consciously thinking about how I feel physically before I vocally say I am sorry. Um, and and I'm, I'm consciously trying to do that and work on that. And I hope by now everyone kind of sees that, that the truth with Bill, Bill is always uh, kind of working on something uh, with himself. And, and I talk about these things because this is a constant endeavor. Um, and this is something I, I hope that everyone is doing, is working on themselves. Um, some of the greatest classes I, I had in college uh, to start my college career were uh, child psychology, uh, were psychology in general, uh, sociology, uh, philosophy, um, and of course world religions really changed changed the way I, I saw religion. Um, and, and it is knowledge that, that kept me wanting more, that kept that adventure spirit alive. And we are all have that adventure spirit. We just, sometimes we're scared to use it. Sometimes we think we don't have the time to use it or we fill our lives with, with things that consume time that could be better spent learning more about yourself. Um, because the, the end goal in that is, is absolutely beautiful. And it is uh, something we all should attain for. Um, so that's it for today, folks. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, a little bit of a long one today. I uh, hope everyone had a good week. hope everyone has a good week. I love you all. Thank you for joining me today. Uh, if you have any questions, any comments, please send them in. Um, what else can I say? Uh, next week, um, we will probably go over the manifold and the one, and I'll think of some other fun things to, to do and, and talk about. Um, so thank you again for listening, folks. Uh, I love you all. Join us again next week. Um, thanks. This is The Truth with Bill.